Hi, you're listening to Google Heads, a Deadwood podcast and movie film. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield, and today we're going to be discussing the fifth episode of season two of Deadwood, which is Complications, formerly Difficulties, <laughs> which I, weirdly I think is the like the full title. <laughs> According to like weird, I've I've was browsing the internet and I couldn't really find an explanation for this. Maybe you did. I couldn't find um, anything. I don't think it's the full title, just because the way that HBO has it, it's complications and then in parentheses formally and then in quotes difficulties. Difficulties, as if it's a different title. I know, but on AV Club, uh, yeah. for example, they I couldn't that's find how they list it. I couldn't find <laughs> anything that indicated that it was originally titled that. Like I couldn't mm. find any evidence of that. Maybe it's out there. I don't know. But my assumption is that when it aired, it was called Difficulties, and then it was renamed Complications, perhaps, uh, on the DVD release. Well, this is a... Uh, yes, exactly. It could be a, one of those... Um, although it just raises all these questions on why anyone would want to rename it. Um, I think I think Complications is a more evocative title, given the events of the episode. I guess we'll get into that. I suppose so, but... Difficulty is the ones that is the one that uh, is directly referenced multiple times, so it's a bit odd. I think anyway, it's just a funny um, oddity. That said, if anybody's listening and knows the uh, the origins of this particular episode, if there's anybody who would know, it's the Deadwood fandom who <laughs> seem to have all sorts of arcane knowledge about the show. Um, so please do let us know. Uh, but if nobody knows, then I guess it'll just forever remain a mystery inside of. David Milch's head, or HBO, some HBO exec, maybe David Milch had nothing to do with it. Um, anyway, so this episode is uh, directed by Greg Feinberg and written by Victoria Morrow. Um, so Greg Feinberg, has he? Uh, what's the uh, what's the story with him? Greg Feinberg was the was a producer on the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. Oh. Funnily enough, I think he became better known for. His work on True Blood. Okay. But that's what I know him for, so he gets a pass for me uh, forever for that. <laughs> he was he was a producer on Firewalk with me, too. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. Be good good for he, him. But he wasn't involved in the in the return? No, not at all. That was pretty oh. much just Lynch and uh, Mark Frost. Okay, yeah. Mark Frost is the one I, I remember from... Um... Yes, for those of you who are curious, we have an almost complete season of a Twin Peaks podcast, which you can certainly check out if you are curious um and uh but yeah so i know mark frost from that but i don't know i didn't realize greg feinberg was also involved um cool and then in terms of deadwood was there any were there any deadwood episodes that uh none that we've gotten to yet okay it did say something about he was like a producer or something on this as well i think it wasn't just a director maybe i thought i saw his name somewhere else um but anyway uh so one of the things i felt about this episode before i i cover the like the summary of it is that it, it felt to me like this was what I this felt like Deadwood to me more than last episode in that it was well as as we said last episode I wasn't overly thrilled with like the direction and things like that because Alan Taylor's not my favorite director but also it just wasn't as interesting I think as Deadwood can be um, as a show and this episode just immediately was all of the things that I love about the show. 
um, you know, it's it like launches into a moment that I found to be quite sad. For example, um, which we'll I'll 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 mention later. But um, it meant it. So there was that. There was it, it was often very funny. It was extremely hard to watch at some parts uh, as well. And I just think that that's the extreme ends of even just the emotional spectrum uh, for the show is much more for me like Deadwood and last episode I didn't really experience that to the same degree um, even when things that are kind of gross happen or or whatever shocking they're not they didn't hit hit me with the same intensity that did in this episode and it's partially because of you know actors have more to do in this episode I think than they did previously there's more going on um, in this in this episode but yeah I don't know if you felt the same that it felt uh, like a bit of a step up from the previous uh, it's definitely a step up in terms of direction i felt Mm. it's definitely it it feels just more um i don't know how to put it but there's a lot of stuff like the the way he'll for feinberg will pull focus uh when looking sort of past someone's profile to see as they turn their head or here or he'll um sort of adjust to see someone walking through in the background that we're supposed to notice mm-hmm. as the, as the actual focus is on the scene in the foreground. It's, 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 you know, it's not uh, revolutionary, but it is really solid, really uh, fun to watch. Exactly. And also I think he draws out performances from these characters that or these actors that that's uh, what I felt like was missing last time, you know, is that there was this, and I, I'm reducing acting to like how many takes you do with an actor to get the take you want, which is not really what I mean. Um, although, you know, when people talk about Kubrick, Kubrick, right, they're like, oh, well, he made him do it all uh, 6,000 times and the, until he got the right take. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily make it good. But anyway, um, so I don't want to reduce acting to that. But I think either whatever the director says to get the right performance out or however the director makes the actor feel comfortable to get the right performance out or by taking multiple um, uh, takes or whatever whatever the, the director's doing to get those, those takes, I felt like this episode had them for the actors that last episode, again, none of it was bad, but I just thought like it could be better, basically. Um, and here, I think we got that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I'm sure this will come out as we discuss the actual episode so just briefly to go over the synopsis i mean it this is a it's a bit hard to talk about because there's it starts off with a few disparate uh, elements but then they all sort of converge so i would say i don't <clears throat> i sort of divided them in my notes a, a certain way but again like like i said they all come together ultimately so there's the first bit which is that al is awake now um and is beginning to uh, learn about what's been going on in the camp. Um, through his fairly not unreliable but sort of scattered uh, reports from his his henchmen, um, Sai is ha, is has a new relationship with Wolcott. Um, we're not really sure where that's going to go, but there's definitely a bit more going on there than uh, than before because of new information that he gets. Um, we have Alma is sick, which is probably one of the central, and I would say the namesake of the episode. Um, and it's, she's sick because she's, it, it turns out she's pregnant, um, which is quite a significant, uh, development as well, because obviously it's Bullocks. Um, and then there's, um, there's 
Jari, Jerry, whatever, whatever this guy's name is, the commissioner, um, who is trying to, again, nobody's quite as effective at this. And one thing Sai did prove is that, you know, obviously Farnham's terrible at this, at spreading the rumors in the camp. And uh, uh, Jari immediately screws it up because Merrick is willing to play ball with him. Um, but uh, anyway, so he's trying to spread uh, whatever the information is about um, uh, the claims that may go up for sale. And then there's this bizarre element with Miss Isringhausen, whose name is apparently Alice, I think. Um, so we'll talk about that. And Hostetler, who we haven't seen since Mr. Wu, um, but is a character in who a person who lives in Deadwood, um, who is uh, adds a, a yet another quite depressing racial dynamic to the show. And um yeah, and then there's uh a little bit at the end with Mr. Wolcott and uh and Carrie. Um I think that's about everything and they again they all start to flow into one another so it's hard to distinguish between them. Um I guess there's, you know, like Trixie's getting lessons and stuff, but that's really more tied into what's going on with Alma than it is an individual plot line. Uh yeah, I think that's that's all of all of the episodes. Is there anything major I'm missing? Well, I mean, there's a lot of plot beats that we didn't really go over, but I guess we could just go over them as we discuss them. Yeah, I mean, I just, I yeah, it's I just was like broad strokes, you know. Um, we can we can I definitely want to talk about each of those things <laughs> in a lot more detail. Um, so I think uh, yeah, I mean, we can we can start with Al, who's who's sort of coming to in this, uh, in this episode. Would you, would you, uh, how'd you feel about this? About Al? Yeah. Um, yeah. Aside I mean, Ian McShane it's nice to, it's nice to have Ian McShane back and, and, and talking. Yeah. The, the one scene that really stuck out to me is the scene early on with Cochran when he's very, you know, he's very literally wounded, but he seems also emotionally wounded in a way that we haven't seen Al before. And he's talking about how, Oh, well, I don't remember. Remember the context, but he's talking about he can't he can't grab the glass with his right hand, but I'll slit your throat. I can still grab a knife with my left. He had I'll, a stroke. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he feels very uh, weakened and sort of pathetic in a way that we never see from Al, which I found really compelling. And I found it really sad to see him in this yeah. state and to see him so like <laughs> to see him struggling so much to assert any sort of dominance. I'm I'm laughing just because it's not it's not funny at all. It's actually really sad, but that's exactly how I felt, and I got really emotional. And it was like two seconds into the episode, I was like, "Wow!" It's just that's that's when I was like, "This is a different episode than last episode," just because I just did no reaction even close to that. Um, and immediately I was just yeah, I found that really. I have a soft spot for like tough guys in in um, series that you get to know expressing emotion. It gets really like. Uh, affects me i don't know why it just it's very uh um uh affecting to me so when this have you seen the has you have you seen any of the films of michael mann by any chance you know what i don't think i've ever seen a michael mann film i know you're obsessed with michael mann but i this is one of the reasons i love michael (laughs) mann because his movies are all about very sort of para these sort of paragons of masculinity who are also deeply empathetic and deeply not damaged but very uh able to both express emotion and receive emotion in very, in an open way, in a way that like uh tough guy figures in those, in that genre and the genres he works in never are. 
they're always very closed off and very, you know, kind of nondescript emotionally speaking. So he makes me, I wrote about this last year. He makes movies about guys who are, uh, who feel what other people feel and who are open to that and who can, uh, express how they feel. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that sounds extremely appealing. It's the kind of thing I would want to check. Did you see The Hunt for the Wilder People? No, I actually didn't. Oh, I love that movie. It's a great movie, but also it has that same kind of theme. That theme is not, I mean, it's also a theme in Up to some to some degree. Like, it's a thing that happens, you know, it's like the grumpy, you know, sort of cantankerous person. And then it turns out, oh, they're actually a softie. Um, and I just, I don't know, I, just, I like that. It's a good trope. Um, but it, with, with Al, I mean, we've seen it in the past, obviously, with, you know, he's he's quite sympathetic to a lot of characters and a lot of people. I mean, he makes a crack at Dan, who's just staring at him, <laughs> right, in the beginning, um, and, uh, you know, basically implying that, he, you know, Dan's in love with him. Um, but, like, it's kind of true, you know, and that is, that is, you know, so other people love him, but that, that, that Al was so concerned with appearing vulnerable to other people um, that basically, and, and it's, you know what it's almost like? You know, we talked about this, that, that Deadwood was originally conceived as a show about the founding of Rome. You know, it is this idea of, like, the leader or the, the president, the king, the emperor, whatever, trying to shield the public from their, whatever their perceived weaknesses or whatever it might be. Um, because, if, you know, for the good of, of like, leading the camp. Um, and I think you definitely see, you know, sort of the Franklin Roosevelt polio thing, right? Where it's like, you know, you always had him in looking like he was standing in some sort of device or whatever, because it was, it was for whatever the reason was, but it was like an image thing. And I think that it's, you get the same sort of thing here. And there's also the personal element, obviously that Al is, you know, likes to be in control of things. And this is the opposite of that. Um, so yeah. Uh, so that's that. And, and uh, we will, yeah, we'll come back to that a, a bit. The other, the other element I do want to point out, it's something I love about doctor characters. Um, it's true in the books that I've been reading for a thousand years and still haven't finished um, the Patrick O'Brien master and commander series. Um, one of the main characters is a doctor. And so by, because of that, he gets to speak to all of the members of the crew on the ship that he serves on or whatever ship he shows serves on. And he gets completely different perspectives than the captain does because the captain, obviously everyone's trying to, you know, follow their duty and be polite and follow decorum and all these things. But with the doctor, they can be much more vulnerable. And you have the same thing here with Cochrane where, you know, Alma or Al or anybody in the camp who has to come to Cochrane ends up, you know, revealing things about themselves that they would never tell anybody else. So, like, this conversation that Al has with Cochrane obviously would never happen with anybody else in the camp um, because he can't be vulnerable with anybody else. And I think that's a, um, a cool way of, of allowing any show or book or story or whatever to give you a different perspective on a character. Um, so it's something I think, yeah, that the show does quite well, especially since Brad Dourif is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, the other, um, uh, so at the other, the other saloon, um, Sai is getting a huge payment from the Shazami, and he's not sure what the money's coming from, um, and it turns out that it's mostly coming from Wolcott, um, and. Although Sai immediately rolled over as soon as Wolcott came into town, who, by the way, we don't see Wolcott for like, what was it, something like 26, 27 minutes into this episode, um, even though he's been quite central uh, up until now. But 
Uh, anyway, so when Walcott first comes into town a couple episodes ago, Sai immediately rolls over. But now that Sai seems to think he has some leverage over Walcott by, by understanding that he has these, um, uh, you know, pro sexual proclivities that are quite unsavory, he's sort of his attitude has changed, and he's he's are willing to use that in a in a way that you know. So again, distinguishing him a bit from Farnham, who if he learned this would probably try to use the information in some way, but would be useless and not get anything done. Whereas Sai might actually effectively use it, and it's not clear how that's going to come across um, uh, later on, or how it's going to be used, but it is a, a new development. Yeah, Sai in this episode, this whole season, he's had this that sort of roiling anger, and it's really, really good in this episode, because he's just, there's the continued sense of like, yeah, of the of the pot that's just about to bubble over. And again, we talked about this before. Powers Booth, so good. So good in this role. Oh, yeah. Especially this episode. I actually really... I, I, I usually like him, um, but I particularly liked him in this episode probably the most when they're having the standoff in front of the notice outside Merrick's shop because that was amazing. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, he's, he's really good here. Yeah, and it, it, again, it's like it's such a different side to Sai we're seeing this season. I don't remember him being like, I remember him being very forceful and assertive in season one and very, um, you know, not cruel, but you know, uh, paternalistic, I guess. And here this season, he is always, he, it's like everything's coming at him from all sides and he is trying to defend himself and he is just barely keeping it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, cruel, you know, there's that whole smallpox, outbreak in the first there's there is that i forgot about that you're right where he does sort of just you know and i get it you know he's protecting his business and also everybody who works there right everyone's at risk but he is kind of heartless about the whole thing um and you know pays for it to some some degree when when folks survive and come back and are like what the hell <laughs> but <laughs> um uh and he just puts you know pretty much the whole camp at risk to save himself but um yes i, I think that you're right this is it's cool to see him sort of try and navigate this. Um, and it's, you know, we get a little bit of extra perspective on it because later on Al says, you know, Sai, well, he'll find out that Sai actually is working with them, but he does say, you know, Sai's one of us, not one of them. Um, which does put, you know, does draw some battle lines between who's who in the camp and, and who matters. Um Having said that, I think that there's also an extremely clear commentary in this episode that um, something I didn't really recognize. Uh, I mean, you pointed out that Bullock isn't really in the last episode. Um, and of course, Al's been out of commission. But there is this light and dark side of the force <laughs> thing going on where as Al faded out of the story, so did Bullock. And now that Al's back, Bullock is back by direct contact, I suppose, in some regard, but there's this this clear like they they really only operate on other end, on opposite ends of the spectrum um when they're both around, <laughs> and then if not Bullock just retreats into home life or something, it's not really clear um and that dynamic has nothing to do with size, so it's almost like Bullock and Al really do serve some sort of like fundamental anchor to the whole town that nobody else can really fulfill. Um, to the same regard. Certainly Sai was not keeping anybody in check uh, <laughs> while mm -hmm. Al was out of commission. So, um, yeah, I, I like that. I like that as a concept. It's almost a philosophical. 
Sai is an interesting character to me because he is the foil to Al in so many ways, because he is a guy who likes being in control, who thinks himself to be in control a lot of the time. And you see the way his face lights up when he learns about Walcott's proclivities. And he's like, oh, now I finally have something on him. Now I finally feel like I have the advantage on him. And this this really excites him. But he also has no interest in being like in like wielding power. He just likes having power. He's not like Al, who is perf- who is like has taken it upon himself to have this position of keeping the town in check. And he's using his power to that end. Sai doesn't really have an end other than you know his own enrichment. But even that, I think, is secondary to just the feeling of being in power. Yeah, and and there is this element of the. Um of like sort of Lord of the Flies where, you know, self-appointed leader, you know, where it's like, yeah, it, you know, we're all out for ourselves, but you know, somebody has got to, somebody has got to look out for the collective. <laughs> so I guess I'll do it. Um, so there is that element to it for sure. Uh, and Al's decided, I guess he's going to do that. And, you know, Bullock to some degree is the same kind of person, which does actually put them in, you know, kind of makes a bit more sense why they have this weird tense, you know, frenemy relationship. Um, but, uh, but of course, obviously their approaches uh, tend to be quite different. Um, but yes, no, I agree. And uh, whereas Sai doesn't really fit that, he's more of a, uh, he would be like one of the group, not not the leader in the same way. Um, so yeah, uh, so yeah. And, and then, you know, like I said, there's this malignancy in the town this mr w who is really screwing things up and you know speaking going back to al briefly um uh dan tries to well dan's making a joke about mr wu's warning about lee um but al takes the whole thing very seriously which is what i was saying is that is actually quite serious um while that scene was was funny it was also like you know Wu is an important person to Al um, for, you know, in whatever regard. And, and to some degree, while he is, again, super racist and, you know, as everyone is to pretty much everyone who's not white on the show, um, the there is this level of mutual respect between them for sure that is not, uh, that Dan, I don't think, quite gets. He kind of sees Wu as like a, just some random person, um, uh, some random Chinese person in the town and not, you know, a significant player, but Al appreciates his role, even at the very least within his own community. And if Wu says that there's a new person who is a problem, then it should probably be addressed. So, and so clearly we're not letting this Lee thing go, um, whatever form it takes, whether or not it's about a particular person or about how the um, uh, interactions of that part of town are going to be affected by Wolcott or, um, Hearst's, you know, influence and presence in the town. I do want to just make a point of how dumb Dan is in this instance that he thinks, <laughs> I thought maybe last week he was making a joke about what Wu was doing, but it seems to be that he literally believes that Wu thinks that he has an imaginary friend or an invisible friend that he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Dan literally thinks that's what was going on. He cannot come to understand that he might be referring to another person. That blew my mind. Yeah, you know, there's because Johnny's around all the time, and Johnny is so, so unbelievably dumb. <laughs> it makes Dan look pretty smart, and <laughs> makes Dan feel smart. Yeah, but like Dan's not the brightest bulb in the box. Now that's for sure. Um, 
I mean, there's that amazing scene where Johnny comes in and is trying to warn him that Bullock is outside, apparently standing in the doorway, and and Johnny's mouthing Bullock <laughs> to Al, and uh, I guess to give him a chance to like get out of a direct meeting uh, with him. Um, and Al's like, what are you doing? And it's particularly stupid because Johnny did lose his voice last season, if you remember. So, like, mm-hmm. nobody could figure out what's going I was like, oh, my gosh, has he lost his voice again? Are they rehashing a plot line? But no, it's just Johnny's a moron. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So, anyway, in, in comparison, uh, Dan does look smart in that, in that regard, but he's not, uh, he's not, he's not sharp. Um, so yeah, and then uh, uh, so I would say that I guess just to continue on size plot line, there's I mean it connects to to Commissioner Jari, right? Who is who goes to uh, to Merrick's um, newspaper room, which by the way we haven't seen before. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, where <laughs> he says. In literally two lines, he goes, "I'm big." What does he say? "I'm a." a I'm a big supporter of the first estate. This is the, for the you, fourth to print. estate. Yeah, gr- I have great respect for the fourth estate. Here's a statement to be printed. Yeah, <laughs> I have noted that too. That's a great, great line. Which is like not really dissimilar to how a lot of like main mainstream like newspapers work, uh, where <laughs> it's just like republished um, PR for like government agencies. So, you know, I suppose it's a, in this case, Merrick shows some backbone and doesn't uh, print the, uh, the message and actually does a very, a uh, quite noble thing, which is sort of whistleblow on it and just post the raw, like document that was handed in by the government um, by, by Jari and uh, posts it outside his door, which then sets the whole town into a tizzy. Um and yeah, so I, I I thought that was quite that was quite uh, fun. And then you have this. Um, I don't know if he's been a character on the show before, uh, but you have um, what's his name, Michael Harney playing. Uh, what's he playing? What's the is this this is this Steve? Steve, yeah. Was he a character? I feel like he's been on the show before. It's possible I didn't recognize him, um, but he does seem he's, kind he's of. He's in like Orange a is New Black and a few other shows. So he's I, like, I don't you know. know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't watch Orange. Yeah. Um. So anyway, he plays a a, a character on um, Orange Is the New Black. So that's where I knew him from. But I didn't realize he had also been on. Um, he'd also been on Deadwood. Uh, and he's he's quite amusing here. But he's he's pissed, and the rest of them are pissed. And this is great. I mean, it's one of my favorite moments from this episode by far. It's there's a lot of like absolutely hysterical uh, elements um, to the show. But when when they when when um, Merrick first has to explain what mitigate means because they don't know. And then later when Sai is trying to defuse the situation, which by the way, there's an important moment when, um, uh, when Jari comes in and tries to tell Mr. W that he's, he's sorted it. He's, he's, he was very forceful and got Merrick to publish the notice and it'll all be fine. And then immediately that's undercut and it reveals to, it gives Sai a little bit of a power boost, and he already feels like he's gotten a power boost from the from getting uh, dirt on on Walcott. Um, but he's also now the much more effective messenger for 
Wolcott, which gives him even more uh, uh, sway. And he says, I'll go handle it because clearly this guy's an idiot. And Jari's like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, why don't you take another bath? Of course, reference the last episode, which really puts Jari in his place, especially because that really is the kind of character he is. He's just sort of like someone who could be bought with absolutely no real power or influence or ability to get anything done. Um, whereas Sai, for all his faults, can get things done and is uh, quite a bit more efficient. Um, so he goes off to try and defend the notice and as he's trying to make his point that he gives this great you know little monologue uh, speech to the to the mass of people outside the um, uh, the the newspaper office um he makes a point and he says you know don't don't worry it's not a it's not like it's not a big deal and they say well but they're gonna mitigate you know and and uh powers booth gives this look <laughs> That is just absolutely amazing. To Merrick, he's like, why would you explain what the words mean to them? Like, this is your fault. Um, and it's just absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I just thought that was that was fantastic. Yeah, it's a great scene. And I love when Sai... Uh, Merrick, by the way, standing up to Sai a little bit too, talking back to Sai a little bit. Uh, really weirdly forceful in this episode, where you think of him as kind of um, as kind of mealy mouthed and kind of not nah, well, maybe not. You know, oh, he, he kind of he's he does it to Al all the time. He's weirdly willing to like he doesn't seem to fear for his life in a way that he probably should. <laughs> well, he just he seems very very self centered. I guess is what I'm trying to say, and not really. I, I this this was not behavior I expected of him. I didn't. I, although in retrospect, the idea that he would stand up to Jerry just on the grounds of pride in his profession makes perfect sense to me. Right. Um, but what he says to Sai is kind of like, oh, okay. That's interesting. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and and, and there's also this element of, you know, <laughs> it's great because you have this fantastic, like, size. what is Sai's speech about, right? He's talking about how the, the government's going to come and take your land and it's, you know, they're whatever and they're the, the, um, uh, the government's inherently evil and that's, you know, they're just being the way they always are. And, uh, but of course, blind the fact that he is part of this like puppet master class that, you know, where he's completely in bed with the government, um, which they immediately see through to their credit, right? Steve and all of them see through pretty much immediately. Um, and so there is obviously this, this like network of journalism versus, uh, uh, like workers versus the government and you know the capitalist class and this whole thing um, going on. That's uh, all playing out like politically, but like on an extremely small scale. <laughs> it only matters to like ten people in a huge territory. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, I I really enjoyed that, and I like the I like these I like these like little political moments. Um, go ahead. No, go no, yeah, I, I I agree with you. Um, so yeah, I think uh, so. We can come back to that and the ramifications to what happens there. Um, but we're gonna have to circle back first to Hostetler and all of them. But first, let, why don't we talk about uh, Alma? Who yes, is I'm glad pregnant, you. Because yes. that is a fairly central element. To this yeah, episode. the episode opens with her throwing up, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> know where yeah. this is going." Yeah. Um, I I I like that. She, again, this is the first. Time I, I'm into where what they're doing with Alma this season. Um, I like that she goes to Trixie right away. Mm. 
Um, I really like her Same history. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, my favorite moment in the episode is at the end of that conversation, when she says, my name's Al- my name is Alma. And Trixie says, I know. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but I, I like Trixie's matter of factness, but also her, like, she doesn't have the best bedside manner in this situation, but she no. is, she does, you know, genuinely care. Like she wants this to ha- she wants the outcome to be, like she said, she talks about how she's talking about this abor- abortion concoction that she knows how to make. And she says seven women have died from it. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want that to happen to you. Right. So you can, you know, that's a, a little bit of history for Trixie, but you know, this, but also a little bit of her, you know, Cochran says to her later in the episode, you, your disposition is just as miserable as your employers. And that is something we get from Trixie a lot this season, especially. I feel like she is very always, she has been really on edge and really um, crude and just, you know, when she said that like, in a couple episodes ago, I wish I was a fucking tree. Right. Right, right, right. And this is a moment where that doesn't really crack, but you get a sense of what's motivating it, which is actual, like, genuine concern for people. It is. I mean, she's been, she was really concerned for Al and all the rest of them, but here I think there's a clear sort of, um, you like, like female support, you know, uh, solidarity sort of thing going on between them, right? Because, I mean, it's particularly about this very gendered thing of pregnancy, right? Um, and so Trixie's um, invested in it in a way perhaps that she wouldn't necessarily be invested in something else in that she's taking an active role. Obviously she's invested in what hap- was happening to Al, um, but that was a, for different reasons. And also she wasn't taking as much of an active role in the sense that like there wasn't, I suppose, I suppose she was in some regard, right? She went to go get Doc Ockwin just like, just like, just like she did here. Um, but her personal connection to the specific like thing that is going on obviously wasn't really relevant when you're talking about kidney stones versus being pregnant. Um, and, um, and she was sympathetic, you know, when almost says, you know, like, look, I'm particularly concerned cause I have this, this issue, um, from when I was younger and I'm not going to be able to have kids the way other people will. And so I don't, I don't know if it's the best course of action to have, you know, to have this, this baby. Uh, of course, all of this discussion is all skirting around the fact that this is obviously Seth's kid. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of an awkward thing to just never bring up. Well, it, I think all, we get all we need to in this episode in that one moment where she, again, great focus pull. She walks by the entrance to the store and we just see for a millisecond she exchanges a glance with Seth and that's it. And I think that, you know, that's all we really need in, in this episode. That's all we need is we need her to know that she is ignoring that for the time being. That is not her primary concern. She says, very importantly, I think, I want kids of my own. And obviously right. she's not married to Seth. So even if she, you know, we don't know what her decision is going to be. I think the implication is that she wants to have this kid. Right. But given the time period, like they're not married and she has, you know, we don't know what she's going to do, but that does present sort of a social roadblock. It does. Yeah. I mean, so when she looks at Seth, there is an implication. I mean, it could just be, you know, this is serious and I need you guys to get out so I can have, or I need to be able to have a private conversation with, with Trixie. Um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, but the other thing that we should take into account is that, 
uh, Saul is there when they're having a discussion about this end. So, you know, he's not a dumb person. He can figure out <laughs> what they're talking about and also what that implies. Um, and so whether or not Saul's going to say anything because his, like, best friend, you know, is is going to be the father of a biological father of a child um, is quite a significant thing to not share. It's not just like gossip around town. It's specifically relevant to him. I don't know that he's going to tell him, but you know, it's something that did happen at the end of the episode very specifically. And um, you know, he's, he tells Trixie, I didn't hear anything, which is sort of like a, you know, don't worry. Uh, you know, my lips are sealed kind of moment, but I don't know if that's true. Um, it remains to be seen uh, whether or not Seth's going to learn about it and what his reaction will be. Yeah, this is Seth is in such a complicated situation from two angles, right? Like he has <laughs> he is now living with a family that's not his family and then he has now fathered a child who is with a woman he's not married to. Like he is I really feel for the guy cuz he hasn't done anything. Like he's not a bad guy. He, you can't say he's done anything wrong. It's not like he's yeah, having really a, at all. He wasn't having an affair really, even though he was, you know, technically uh, married, but it, you know, it's not, I think from our modern perspective, it's not like he was causing any emotional damage by doing this. Maybe. It would so. be, yeah. You'd be hard pressed to argue that it was malicious or in any way, like, um, overtly immoral. I agree. Um, but you know, on the other hand, it is, he was married and he knew full well that that was the situation he was in and still decided to go ahead with what he was doing so you know um it's hard to say but i i, I would agree like it, you know, he's clearly not and, it, and the show doesn't in any way well he doesn't really cast any moral i would say morals on a lot of what people do but um or like moral judgment um but in this case there's definitely no implication that like seth's bad because he did it it does suggest that it caused a lot of problems or complications um but it doesn't suggest that he's uh was necessarily wrong um for what he did um so yeah it, uh we need to dedicate a small portion of this episode to richardson um who oh boy uh i i must quote farnham when i say why even richardson my chef my eyes see a household pet somehow walking upright um which is really just a lovely way to describe a fellow human being um he's definitely got like very like reek vibes in this in this episode <laughs> um, yeah oh what's your, what's richardson your... is this the first time he's talked no no he's talked he's talked plenty but it's usually just very well last episode he was so he made the comment about the porridge. That's said. right. That's right. That's right. Uh, no, he talks. He just doesn't have very many lines. He's a lot more here, I think, than he's had. This is, well, this is the first time we've gotten a sense of his personality, I guess I'll say. Which, which is, is Which is to say he's like he's he's like a car, he's like a newspaper cartoon of a man who sees a pretty woman. Um, <laughs> like, and he goes, awooga. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty much. It's really funny. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, he's just kind of awkward, and his, I just, it's this amazing thing, and it's, I don't want to say too much about it, but there is, like, a a significant association of Deadwood with Richardson for people, um, and with this antler 
So I'll just say that for now. Um, for what reason, I won't, I won't really get into. Um, but uh, yeah, so Alma, for some reason or another, picks up an antler on their walking across town, I guess, to look like she's busy and not overtly walking over. <laughs> that to was a, Yeah, that was a great beat, too. Just she has, trying to disguise where she's going. I guess she just picks an antler out of a pile of antlers just outside the gym. Just, right. Yeah, just to look like she's doing anything else. Um, and then she immediately gives it to Richardson to bring back. But of course he doesn't. He keeps it uh, as if it's like a token of love. And then there's that amazing scene later where she's going back to the hardware store and Richardson's just watching her from like across, across the way holding the <laughs> antler. <laughs> Looking at her like a like a child. Oh, it's just incredibly bizarre. Yeah, and the way he walks, like, it's such a good performance because he is, like, he's hunched over, but his head is, like, stuck out, and he's, like, looking, always looking at the ground, and it's just, like, his physicality is so strange and so interesting. (laughs) Like, he couldn't, it's like no other performance on this show. Yeah, and it's it's uh it's worth noting that um he was I'll, I'll quote from Wikipedia here. I think I we brought this up last season, but it wasn't as relevant because Richardson wasn't as much of a character as he is and is becoming. Um but Ralph Richardson, who is the guy who plays Richardson, was originally an extra on Deadwood before the show's producer um David Milch uh noticed him and gave him one line which became Richardson's first on-screen uh, uh, Richardson's first on-screen credit and this led to his recurring role uh, in the 20 episodes of Deadwood um, so yeah pretty much everyone liked him and thought he was great and uh, yeah but he was just like he wasn't really supposed to be a particularly like a main character or, like an important character um, and apparently he's in Parks and Recreation and like other shows just in, like these oh. small bit parts huh. um, so yeah I'm gonna have to keep an eye out for him Wow. Um, in other in other stuff, I've seen people on the Deadwood subreddit, for example, post images being like, "Is that Richardson in this random thing?" Um, and yeah, apparently he's been like an inmate. He's been all sorts of things. Um, he's got a very particular look about him, which I think gives him, you know, it's very. It's not. It doesn't draw attention, but it fits into a lot of different like uh, contexts. Um, but I'm glad that they gave him a bit of a role here because he's he is very entertaining. Um. Okay, so let's just pay quick attention to this uh, Isringhausen um, and Adams uh, section because it's very brief, but it progresses that plot a little bit. What do you think of this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of... Uh, it's I think it's interesting that Adams seems to recognize that he's being worked over at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comes quicker than I would have expected it to, but it's, and it's funny. It may, it, it puts an interesting spin on where this is going to go. That Adams is fully aware that she is, uh, working on him, but he seems to still want to go along with it. Right. Well, I mean, he's clearly swayed by the fact that he, you know, gets to sleep with her, I guess (laughs) seems to be the main, uh, driving force here. Um, but yeah, he's, 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 he makes it clear that he understands that this is, uh, you know, he says, I wouldn't want to find myself in a game of poker with you or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but he also seems to like get, like he, he doubts her. He, he, he knows this isn't true because when oh, she right, says, yes. when she says that, oh, she, yeah. Um, 
she told me that Al is the instrument of her murder. And Adams is like, Al is her instrument. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like exactly. he, like, so he immediately sees through this and yet he's like still willing to go along with it. Yeah. And you know, it's not clear why. So it seems like the end game, or at least the, for now, the end game is to get an audience with Al. For what reason? We have no idea. Um, Again, for what, you know, she's just sort of wafted into town, ended up with Alma, and is trying to make her way to, or maybe she was trying to figure out who the power player was in town, figured out it was Al, and now she wants to go speak with him. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, and she's using Adams to get there. Uh, but, again, it's not clear why or for what reason, so we'll see, but I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned it, because it's clearly, like, developing slowly over the course of a few episodes. Last last episode, we were like, oh, what's the, what's the game here? Now we know a bit more about that and um we'll see uh, maybe maybe she will get an audience with him in the in the coming episodes especially now that al is up and about um the other major character who i as i said before is is back for the first time since last season is hostetler who is the guy who runs the um uh delivery mm-hmm. um who is interacting with a character who i guess was supposed to have a, uh been in deadwood maybe before the first season and then we haven't seen, I guess is the implication. Yeah. Like we've never met. Yeah. Um, so who, so what, so yeah. What would you think of this, this, uh, this plot line? With, well, first of all, I, I had completely forgotten that Hofstetler existed, which, so when these two appeared, I was like, Oh, there's black characters on this show. That's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. And then was reminded that, that he actually has popped up before. Again, this is just the, I'm the victim of how long we took between seasons is these characters. I just completely don't remember at all. Well, but it's important because at the time what I, I was like, Oh, Hostetler. Like I remembered Hostetler as much more of a character. And again, in the first season, he's in like maybe one or two episodes, maybe just one episode. Um, So I made more of a deal out of it than he actually was at the time, much (laughs) like I did with Richardson, but it's because I'm remembering later seasons because I saw them all at once ages ago and so that's why i it, it's a bit off um but this is more of an introduction to hostetler and and actually we learn a lot about him here right he's very particular with how he keeps notes and records of things um and also he has a huge sense of self-preservation um which ha- which comes into play at the towards the end of the episode um and the other person we were introduced to is fields um who is uh is this new character not new to some of the people in the town, but new to us and new to Jane. So we're kind of like Jane in this episode, um, who is somebody who is, I guess, renting out a horse to deliver items to various people around like far away. Um, and I guess there's some sort of deal with how much he gets paid or pays Hosteller or some sort of thing. Anyway, they sort of have some sort of arrangement. Um, so they know each other. And also there's again, the only two black people in the camp. So, that's as far as we know. Um, so there's some sort of, you know, uh, tenuous camaraderie there. But of course, they're not friends. Like, they don't really have much of a, a relationship. Um, Fields finds much more of a, much more companionship in Jane. Who, by the way, I think this is a fantastic episode for, for Jane in this, uh, um, in many regards. I'm sure you felt the same way. Yeah, I, I do want, I do want to talk about that. Um, and we can talk about Hofstetler later because I think his the main moment with him comes later. But I think this bit with Jane and Fields is so good because it is the perfect example of how these care like this the sliding scale of racism, mm-hmm. where Jane is 
She's the liberal. <laughs> she, she, the N-word is used so much in this episode. So, yeah. so much. And I'm sure there's more coming. But she is also like, she's... If, I mean, first of all, the way this scene starts is that he is very slyly trying to pay for the bottle she's drinking out of, presumably because none of the establishments that sell drinks will let him in. Right. And uh, she just offers to share it with him. And she mm-hmm. says, I don't care. And I don't care who sees. And that's a great moment for Jane. But also she says the N word a lot, but again, yep. sliding scale, <laughs> like yeah. you, you kind of have to take L- what you can get with some of these characters. Lowered expectations. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it's a really fun scene. And their, their, uh, kind of budding friendship is, is, is really nice. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, there's also a little bit of bonding over, well, bonding over a fake history, right? Um, mm-hmm. Fields wasn't in, in the union army at all according to Hostetler uh, allegedly um but he had he wears this unionist general uniform which who knows where he got it from um but uh, uh Jane was uh did work for Custer was a or was a, a scout for Custer um and while I think we knew that and maybe we knew more than this and maybe maybe this is new but it just as a, re- a reaffirmation of this if that's the case um her comment that he would have gotten a lot less people killed if he had just not been so ambitious and just sat around drinking is tells us a lot about Jane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, I'm saving people's lives by just sitting around and drinking and not being involved. And you know, there's a certain amount of logic to that, I suppose. Um, And uh, yeah, so I like that. I like that little snapshot of her, um, of her, her world philosophy. Uh, and yeah, but I think that, yeah, that's, that's about it for them. Um, and we'll come back to Hostetler in a minute. So going back to this. Well, I just want to say the way the scene ends, um, is that when, when, uh, field sees the mob coming and he immediately books it, like he has no reason, he has no reason to believe that they're coming for him, but just that's an immediate danger. Yep, exactly. And that's exactly it. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. And I, I did take note of that because he just knows that an angry mob of white people, yeah. Is going and he to, like he doesn't just leave; he goes to hide. Yeah, yeah, he hides as if they're ch- chasing him already, which they aren't. Um, and the next scene, you're proven right because uh, Steve immediately is is you know he's got his little band together, and at first they're going to use him; they're going to use Fields for a, a distraction um, to lure out Bullock to try and get to Commissioner Jari, who, by the way. Um, Oh, I guess we've we've skipped over the main bit with uh with Al and and Bullock, um. But in any case, they were going to use him to try and get to, and then they just decide to focus on Fields, um, and and to to use to use him to basically take out their anger, which is incredibly depressing, but also all feels very authentically American in the worst possible way. Um, yeah, it's really uh, upsetting, and the the scene where they tar him is extremely upsetting. It's ex- yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Um, and so, can I just take it back a little bit? So, so um, the the mob is going after Jari at first, and they are they have this showdown in the um, Bella Union, and Sai seems to be willing to just let it all go, um, like to let it happen. And I'm not really sure what his game plan is there. I mean, I think he he is he is kind of riding high on this uh, power trip like, like that we talked about earlier. He is so uh, infatuated with the idea that he is now rising in the ranks compared to Jerry that he is like, hey, do whatever you want. You know, it's it, it's it can only possibly benefit me. 
Right, because then then that's one less person who has Wolcott's ear, I guess. Yeah. Um. So Al, once he learns that this is happening, and by the way, he's furious that nobody told him that the commissioner was in town. Wait until he finds out that there's a Hearst representative in town. He's probably going to lose his mind because he, <laughs> he still doesn't know about that. Um, and he immediately calls Bullock to go and make sure that Al doesn't get blamed for his murder by preventing him from getting murdered, which is probably a wise choice. Um, and uh, and so Seth's the one who intervenes and throw, <laughs> throws Jari in jail, which is amazing because um, he's just such a whiny, entitled, completely useless human being. Um, but Jane gets to play Jailkeeper, which is very funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, so and then, so yeah, so this, so that was just a rewind. Fast forwarding now back to where we were. Um, so yeah, this is a really horrible scene where uh, where Fields gets tarred and Seth ends up stopping it, which um, you know, I feel like of like law officers of especially that time period, probably not a very usual scene to see. Uh, I don't know how historically see- accurate it is. Well, but- yeah, he because he he seems like furious. He in does. a way that we don't, we even like he. We've seen him angry before, but the way that uh, he he plays it is so uh, enraged, and I, th- I found that really interesting because you get the sense that he is like we don't really know what his racial attitudes are, but Not you definitely get the sense that he's looking at this scene and thinking like this person is being tortured to get to me, and yeah. he feels like responsible for that, and he takes him up to the to the sheriff's office with, with the jail to be for Jane to treat him. Yep. Yep. Like, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's, it is quite a, it's quite a moment. And, you know, as much as, you know, racial slurs fly around this show a lot, you'd never see Seth saying anything like that. Yeah. And you would be surprised to just from the way that they've written the character. It would be weird to hear Timothy Oliphant, like just, drop the n-word <laughs> like it would be weird um and he's never really done that he's he's literally he's of all the characters he's the only one we've seen actually interact with a native american and still hasn't and fought and killed right mm-hmm. uh and he still hasn't at any point said all of the horrible things that they say about native americans in this episode right so i mean in this in this show so yeah it, it would be surprising so there's that and there's also the fact that you know he comes from other places right he, he has like a history and you know he's not just like a he didn't like grow up in the frontier. He grew up, um, well, he was in Montana, I guess, uh, which is, I guess, not that, it's not like it was a city or whatever, but he seems to have more, slightly more liberal attitudes towards things. Um, on the other hand, he is also kind of a fascist. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. like, I'll shoot you in the head if you don't let him go, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, quite a, you know, do or die, judge dread type of um, approach to things. Um, so yeah, uh, so there's that. Yeah, so that was really hard to watch. I found that to be extremely upsetting. Um, and it's always a bit weird in Deadwood because, you know, there's funny moments before and after that scene. Um, and it's like the scene with um, with Richardson holding the antler. That's after that scene. And it's like hard to shift back emotionally, although I did still find it funny. But it's still like, it does leave you in kind of a horrible place. Um, yeah, I think the show is generally pretty good at balancing tone though it is no i think it is i absolutely think it is i just think that it's it, it's a 
it's a roller coaster. It's <laughs> some weird roller coaster of emotions uh, watching this show. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think of is that the main bit? What are we missing? Oh, that can't be it. So I think it is. <laughs> well, there's the last. I guess what was the last scene with Mr. W and Carrie. Where we I do want to talk about that. You Why get don't to we? Yeah. The contents of Wild Bill's letter, which is uh, good. To very. Hear. Ro- I just want to say the only thing I want to say about this is that that letter is so sad and so romantic, and yeah, it makes it, it makes Woolcott so horny <laughs> that he's yeah. like, "I th- tonight I'm gonna take off my pants." <laughs> yeah. And I that is never, re- I thought he was a never nude, but I guess yeah. not. <laughs> and I just that the, that that being your reaction to that letter is so funny to me. Yeah, he's um, Wilcott's really weird. I gotta say, you remember um, uh, Jack McCall? Like Garrett Dale Hunt's a good actor. <laughs> he is, and what's funny is I never, I never thought of him as a good actor before this show. Really? Like I would always see him and I would he would be kind of like one of those guys like Ed Screen or like um, Sam Worthington. And you're just like, oh, he's one of those kind of square jawed white guys who shows up in these kinds of movies and you don't really think much of him. Um, Interesting. But, oh, OK. Yeah. I like, guess because I, I, I put him in that experiences with him. So I you know, that's how I. How yeah, I, I guess I, I just put him in that camp and I never like I don't think I ever thought he was a bad actor in the way that I kind of think like Ed Screen and Sam Worthington are bad actors. Uh, but <laughs> no offense to them. Like they, you know, d- you know, do what you got to do. But I, I just kind of grouped him together with them. Just sort of not I, more nondescript, I guess. OK, uh, but no, he's really good on this show. He is. And he's played two completely different characters in the same world. You know, um, I think it's yeah, it is a testament to him. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So I suppose that that's basically sums up the But I agree that the, the letter was extremely depressing um as much of this show is uh the last thing i want to say just to reiterate this point about seth and al is that um there's literally a moment where al says when i get back on my feet i'll carry my share of the water which oh yes i'm glad you brought that up sorry keep going yeah no i just i think that 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 emphasizes this point where there's this it's like they're they're each of them are holding up like you know, ends of the the town, you know, like they're sort of the pillars of the town, like literally up. (laughs) And there's this implication that without them, everything falls apart, which is, again, we saw that seemed to be exactly what was happening, right? Everyone was selling their claims. Uh, It was about to be basically taken over by George Hurst. Um, And now that they're back on the scene, things have already shifted, right? Their, their actions are keeping Wolcott and his interests at least a little bit in check, and I'm sure we'll see even more of that as Al comes to and starts to realize that he has completely lost control of the town in the space of, like, a couple of days. But yeah, yeah please I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that moment because it is so... It, first of all, the what it represents, the way that um, Seth responds, which is, he says, I'll put my money on you. Right. It is, first of all, him accepting that he's going to share responsibility for Deadwood with Al, mm-hmm. but also that is exactly what Bill... Uh, said to him in the first episode when they shoot the guy and uh, Seth doesn't know which one of them fired the killing shot. And Bill says, I put, I'll put, I'd put my money on you. Oh yeah. Very good. So I think that's a, that's a neat callback. Did you, did you remember that? I remembered that. I don't know why I remembered it, but I did. Wow. That is very good. Yeah, no, I completely forgot about that, but that is a hundred percent true. And I think that the, um, 
and they had a very close relationship um, that developed much quicker than Alan Seth, who yeah. had a tough, <laughs> tough go of it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's very true. And we're starting to see, and this is why, you know, it really isn't the case that Al, as much as he's sort of antagonistic in the first season, he's just shifts radically to the point where I felt like season two, season three-ish, like Al just feels like much more of a protagonist in his own weird way um, <laughs> in, the, in the context of Deadwood. Um, and part of it is because, you know, if he's not at odds with Seth, who is defined sort of early on as a protagonist of the show, um, then how can he really be an antagonist? Um, and so he definitely feels like more of a, you know, a, a character to root for even more so than he was before. Not just because Ian McShane is a great actor and you want to see him be bad, but actually because you want to see him be good for the town in his weird um, <laughs> seedy underbelly sort of way. Um, so yeah, no, it'll be good to see him try and uh, dislodge uh, George Hurst and his interests from the town. Um, okay, so I think that's uh, that's it for complications, formerly difficulties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next week is uh, something very expensive. Yeah, but what's it uh, called? Yeah, something very expensive, I believe. Yeah, but what's it called? <laughs> that's what it's called. Sorry, it's you opened me up. I had to. I don't know. Why that's, would you do that? I don't know why I had to do it. I just something in me said you have to do it right now. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> that was so stupid. Why did I say that? Anyway, why did I do that? I'm not editing it out, so it's on there. Oh God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. All right, so something very expensive, which um, yeah, could refer to any number of things. So I guess we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. All right. Until next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>